Good morning, everybody. My name is Joel, and I'm the Connections Pastor here at Eaglemont Church. And my name is Jaden, and I'm the Next Gen Pastor here. We're going to be continuing our series this morning entitled The Problem of God. This morning, we're dealing with the problem of the Bible. And is that really a problem? Now, you may know this or you may not, but the Bible is the number one selling book in the world. In fact, if the Bible was allowed to be on the New York Times bestseller list, it would be number one every week, every month of every year. Uh, the Christian faith views the Bible as the revealed word of God, without which we wouldn't know the specifics of God's character, the plan of salvation, and all the other pillar doctrines of Christianity. Needless to say, the Bible is pretty pivotal to what Christians believe. There are questions and doubts by skeptics about the Bible's accuracy, its trustworthiness, and its truthfulness. The arguments would be that the Bible is outdated, it's irrelevant, it's inaccurate, and some would say even mythological. Skeptics question the legitimacy of the Bible. It's really not anything new. Again, the purpose of this series is to investigate the evidence. What does the evidence have to say about the Bible? So this morning we're going to look at several of the questions and concerns that skeptics have towards the Bible. So the first question is this, is the Bible authentic? Is the Bible that you can have in your hands this morning the same as what was originally written? Has it been changed? I don't know about you, have you ever been sold knock-off goods? Jaden, any knock-off goods that you have in your collection? None that I've realized, but I also don't really like to spend a lot of money, so I'm sure that there are some hidden away. That's fair. I'm definitely the same, and I most definitely have received knock-off goods before, both as gifts, and I'm not gonna lie, I've bought some myself. Uh, I think I shared this a few years ago with the church. I bought, when I was a teenager, I liked the cologne, cool, cool water cologne. You know that? Oh. But uh, I used to work at a store uh, similar to the Salvation Army called Liquidation World. And uh, they sold a brand called Cool Breeze. Cool Breeze cologne. It sounds so similar. And it even had the blue color. Uh, one of the issues with it, though, is that if you were wearing a white shirt, the blue cologne would also dye your shirt blue. It was clearly a knockoff. The smell would last for like two minutes. Oh, yeah. Easy to tell. But I've also had good knockoffs. Like uh, my, my brother, well, sorry, <clears throat> a family member who is to be named Nameless uh, bought me uh, a Canada jersey, a Team Canada jersey, back when the Vancouver Olympics were going on. Oh. With my favorite player, Jerome McGinley, on the back. It was a Chinese knockoff. I think it was like 20 bucks. I couldn't tell when I got it. I had to be told. But there's like little things that you can tell. Just like a cashier always looks at the dollar bill, right? There's mm -hmm. ways to tell. Uh, a knockoff really has no value, but something that's real, a, a real jersey would be of a lot of value, right? So one of the frequent charges thrown against the Bible is that it's not actually accurate. It's a knockoff. It's not the original writings. It's been changed and added to over the years. Historians, though, tell us that the Bible is actually one of the most reliable and credible documents from antiquity. It's remarkable to think about this, given the number of translations and languages and cultures that the, the Bible has been translated through. Think about when you were a kid and you played the game Telephone. Did you play that when you were a little kid? Oh, all the time, yeah. Yeah. What are you, what are you gonna say, no? Yeah, oh. everybody's played that game. It's <laughs> the best game ever. But you sit in a circle and you whisper to the person beside you and then you go around and find out what the message is by the time it gets to the end. And by the end, it's always super distorted. It's nothing like the original message. So think about how many times the Bible has been passed on from not just a person, but through languages, through cultures, and yet 
it is being marked by historians as one of the most credible and accurate. You can compare two copies of the same passage of the Bible, copied 500 years apart, and found in completely different geographical areas, and they are virtually identical. Chosen Bible scholars, which were called scribes, did the work of making copies so that others could read it. It was not something they did alone by themselves in a dark room. Two other scribes would hover over the copier's shoulder as he worked. If you don't like being looked over, this would not be your job. And if he made an error while he was copying the Bible, even a single letter that was off, the other two would correct the mistake and then all three would have to initial the correction as it was being copied on the manuscript or else the manuscript would be destroyed. The Bible was seen as being a living, breathing document. There was a sacredness to it. I'm going to show you a video clip here of, of uh, Alistair McGrath, who is the professor of science and religion at Oxford University. And he's going to speak on the authenticity of the Bible through the lens of the science of textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. So Jaden, another complaint that can be brought about the Bible is that accusation of it being riddled with contradictions mm -hmm. and mistakes. So many of the skeptics of the Bible believe that it contains contradictions and mistakes all over. 
So reddit.com, if you've heard of it, it basically is a site where anyone who's at home sitting in sweatpants in their parents' basement can write whatever they'd like. Kind of like Wikipedia, but a little different. Uh, and it's really become a hotspot for young skeptics. They will eloquently quote scriptures that they believe contradict one another, and they use the New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, who asserts in his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, says that there are more than 400,000 errors in the Bible. So sadly, this claim has caused many people to actually doubt the Christian faith. But when we actually look closely and navigate these claims, we find that many of the mistakes that people are citing are nothing new. They're not error, but passages that are just misread, misunderstood, and have been known and explained by scholars of all stripes for many years. Hmm. He also isn't talking about 400,000 separate mistakes, but small variations between different manuscripts. So an occasional Greek or Hebrew word that's spelt differently than the original. And New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg points out that Ehrman's logic is counting a single mistake and multiplying it by the amount of times it was published. So one mistake translated in 30 languages is 30 mistakes right there. But Bloomberg says uh, there are 1.6 million errors in the first printing of Ehrman's book since someone counted 16 typos and there were 100,000 printed. So that right there. So what should we do with those errors? Well, these typically are what we would imagine are sold as errors. They're nothing that have to do with the doctrine, but rather variations of a word here or there in a verse. And even those are not scattered equally throughout the New Testament, but are clustered in certain areas. So in truth, there are only two disputed passages in the entire New Testament that are more than two verses in length. Those are Mark 16, 9 to 20, and John 7, 53, um, and then 8 to 11. So we're not trying to hide them. And if you have an English version of the Bible, it will actually inform you of the dispute of these passages in the footnotes. Hmm. So what about contradictions in the portrayal of Jesus' stories in the Gospels? Yeah, so there's, if you've read through the Gospels, you'll know that there's some stories that have little different details in one Gospel and a very similar parable that would be told in another Gospel with a, a slightly different uh, variation of the story. An example of this could be Matthew 25, 14 to 30, compared to Luke 19, 12 to 28. And this is the parable of the talents that Jesus told. There's slight variation between the story itself. Uh, but think of it this way. If you've ever had to listen to a preacher tell an illustration on one Sunday, and then maybe a few years later they pull that same illustration out another time, the details might be slightly different in order to be able to make a different emphasis or point. Or if you're married and your spouse is a storyteller or a joke teller, you've probably heard the same joke 30 times. And again, depending on the audience, whether they're telling their mom or their child the joke versus they're telling their best buddy from high school, there may be a slight variation on how the joke is told. Jesus would have told the same parables multiple times in different settings, probably using a different emphasis each time. Again, remember, in his public ministry while the disciples followed him, that's over three years. You can imagine that in three years, you're going to tell the same story more than once. I don't make it usually more than a week without telling the same story. Uh, again, in these differences in the gospel, it exists because Matthew is likely using one version of the story told one day, and Luke is using another version of the story that Jesus told at a time and place. We have to be consistent here, and we can't impose a standard on the Bible as a text that we wouldn't impose or include on ourselves or others. Now, there's also contradictions that can happen in the Gospels themselves, not just in, in the parables that Jesus told, but what about the information that the Gospels provide? 
Uh, let me give a couple examples here. Uh, one of the ones that's often cited by those who are skeptical of the Bible is the death of Judas. So Judas' death is recorded in both Matthew 27.5 and Acts 1.8. And in Matthew 27.5 it says this, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Don't worry, that's not the end of our message. We're going to keep going. But in Acts 1.8, comparing it, it says Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, the 30 pieces of silver, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of, and all of his bowels gushed out. So which is it? Which one is correct? It's important to note here, Acts doesn't say that Judas never hanged himself. And that's the thing is people will say, well, in the one it says he hanged himself, and the other it says he fell and his bowels fell out, spilled out on the ground. Acts doesn't say anything about him hanging himself. It just says, if it said something contradictory like uh, Judas was stabbed or Judas was run over by rabid cows that was completely contradictory, that would be a different story. But these accounts are actually complementary accounts. The story in Acts is simply filling in later details. Judas did hang himself, but someone eventually cut him down, or the rope broke, and he fell on the ground below and his bowels spilled out. I'll take another familiar kind of one that people will point out and say, what a huge contradiction. The Bible is obviously incorrect. Uh, that would be uh, the angels that are seen at the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew 28, 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. John 20, verse 12, Mary saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the foot. Now, Jane, I don't know how you were at math in school, but we got one talking about two and one talking about one. I'm just going to blow your mind right now. Where there are two, there is also one. Again, these, these passages are actually not in contradiction. Um, Matthew didn't say there was only one angel. Matthew's account simply tells us of one particular angel who spoke to Mary, whereas John is reporting how many angels were actually there. Rather than discrediting, these discrepancies actually help validate the testimony of the Gospel writers. Think of it like if you were in a courtroom. And you are in small claims court and, there, and they had a multiple witnesses that came and spoke in front of the court. And if all of the witnesses said the exact same words, the exact same things, you would actually find their testimony uncredible. Mm -hmm. Because if you've ever witnessed an accident, I, I know I have and I had to give my testimony for it, you're going to have slightly different perspective depending on where you were and how you saw the accident. For someone who is on one angle, they're going to see certain things versus someone who's at another. It's one of the great things about the Gospels is that they actually complement each other because we're getting the perspectives of different people who were present at these stories and at these miracles. Another indication, indicator of the authenticity of the Bible is what's called counterproductive content. Uh, Jaden, can you maybe speak for a minute on, on that? Absolutely. I mean, if the Bible was trying to make Christianity seem really soft and pretty, there would be a whole lot less Bible. So as Timothy Keller says, uh, Jesus at the end of his life, before crucifixion, praying in a garden, sweating blood because of anxiety and fear, asking God the Father if the suffering could be taken away from him. This isn't something that you would include in a story if you're trying to make Jesus look like the hero. Hmm. So not only that, but when you look at the disciples themselves, 
They often look terrible in the stories. They True. Jesus has to call them out for having no faith. They lie, they say the wrong thing, all this stuff. It's like giving a toast at a wedding ceremony and talking about the faults of the bride and groom. I don't know, I haven't been to that many weddings, but have you ever seen that? Uh, no. Thank that would goodness. be a little awkward. How awkward would that be? But that's, why would the gospel writers include this? Well, because they were simply writing what happened instead of trying to clean up the accounts and leaving them as they were, which is how they did it. And leaving things just as they were, many would look at what's written in the Old Testament and see it as a conflict with what's written in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, we're reading about a lot of laws and practices given to a specific nation, which is Israel, at a specific time. Even more, these laws and practices pointed to a coming time when they would be fulfilled by a new way of believing and relating to God. So strict adherence to the specific laws in the Old Testament were only intended for specific people at a specific time. Uh, so in Galatians 3, 23-39, Paul teaches that the law was like a tutor that guides God's people for a time, but it's superseded by Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the Bible makes it clear that the Messiah, Jesus, has come, has brought God's kingdom, and therefore has instituted a new era with new practices and commandments and things for this time. So you can't understand the Bible without understanding that it's a progressive story, still continuing today. So the Bible is the story of Jesus. And while Jesus is only formally introduced as a human body in the New Testament, he's actively underlying in all of the Old Testament. Christians no longer live under the rules of the kingdom of Israel, but now under the rule of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a progressive revelation that reveals the truth about God to us in stages, the latter stages of which leave behind the former stages. This isn't a contradiction, but rather a, by a byproduct of maturation. So this may explain how the accounts of the Old and New Testament coincide, but the question remains, do biblical accounts actually line up with other historical data? Is the history of the Bible actually accurate? Okay, so is the history of the Bible historically accurate? Now, first of all, remember that when the, man the first manuscripts of the New Testament were written, they there were still people around who would have been first-hand witnesses of the events that would have happened. Uh, one of the things about being a good liar is a good liar knows not to include too many details so as not to get caught. Think of the explicit detail that the Bible mentions. The resurrection of Jesus, it mentions that over 500 people saw him after his resurrection. The Apostle Paul points to this fact in his letters. People in that area would have been able to dispute that truth. That's a lot of people that they would have been able to go around, did anybody see him? Do you know of anybody who saw them? It, it would have had a lack of credibility. Mark chapter 6 mentions how Jesus fed 5,000. Now that 5,000 actually could have been as many, probably like 15,000, because that just counted the men that were present listening to Jesus teach, not the women and children. And then he fed all of them with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. An incredible miracle. But think again around these small towns and communities. That's a lot of people that would have been aware of that story. Or Mark chapter 5. As Jesus casts a demon out of a man who was possessed and, and hurls the demons into a, a flock of pigs. Is that the right term? A flock? I don't think pigs are flocks, but whatever they are. A herd a is probably a more group? accurate term. A what? Collection? Group? A group. A collection of pigs. Please comment below what it is. <laughs> but he's, he goes then and you see 
2,000, imagine that, 2,000 pigs go into the sea. There was actually a lot of fear in the local people because all these pigs jumped over. These were stories that would have been told and told and retold and would have been known. With, that, these, with these public events in small towns, this, the Bible and the, the manuscripts of the New Testament never would have gained an audience in written form if they didn't happen. There wouldn't have been the credibility amongst the people. In Mark 15, 25, Mark specifically mentions Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross of Jesus, and that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would he waste time being so specific about this man? He wasn't really pivotal to the story. It was so that readers who questioned the event could go and ask Simon themselves. Again, when these manuscripts were first made, they could go to the places, ask the people who were involved, and find the validity of its truth. We can add to this the historical records of the Bible and how they line up with known historic civilizations, kingdoms, wars, and events. Think of archaeology itself. We can see the validation for the historical record of the Bible through archaeological discoveries. Uh, Nelson Gluck, who is a renowned Jewish archaeologist, has said that it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Now, there have been many archaeological finds that have confirmed biblical accounts. Some that actually, originally when they first found, they thought disputed biblical accounts, but as they've been able to dig further, they've been able to find the relevance of the truth of the biblical accounts. An example of that is in John 5, 1-2, which spoke about a place called Bethsaida uh, that has a pool in John 5, 1-2 by the Sheep's Gate. And there, there are five roofed colonnades. Archaeologists had done some work there, but had not found a pool, let alone the other details that are shared in John chapter 5. This could lead some to say that they just couldn't trust this passage and that it was inaccurate. We have to be careful not to walk away at the first sign of contradiction. We have to wait for things to evolve to be able to see the truth. And sometimes scientific study needs to catch up with the Bible. In the mid-1900s, these archaeologists then dug deeper with more advanced technology and found a pool in Bethsaida, the Sheep Gate, and the five root colonnades exactly how John had described. With over the past 2,000 years, there have been countless opportunities to disprove the thousands of geographical and historical references of the Bible. Kings, places, numbers, events, yet not one of them has ever been disproven. Now, some of the arguments that skeptics have towards the Bible are rooted not in issues with authenticity of the text or historical records. Some have issues with what could be categorized as cultural trust issues. So some skeptics argue that the Bible is culturally regressive and it's a, like written in a way that people shouldn't accept. So they say that it's pro-slavery and misogynistic. So Timothy Keller writes though, the Bible might not always be teaching what we think it's teaching. So in other words, be slow to judge something then from another time in a culture until you are sure you understand what it's saying in context. So for example, uh, if we look at Paul's statements in Colossians 3.22, slaves obey your earthly masters. Some look at this and say that's an endorsement of slavery. But in first century Rome, slavery was different than what we think of today. So it had nothing to do with race, they weren't owned like how we view slaves. Rather, uh, it was a form of employment, so teachers, servants, librarians, accountants, all of that was included. And 85 to 90% of Rome and Italy were slaves of or of slave origin. 
So because slavery was a form of employment, one could work their way out of it in about 10 to 15 years. So what Paul is actually saying isn't slavery is okay, but what he's saying is work hard and respect your superiors. When it comes to polygamy in the Old Testament, there's a huge difference between the Bible explaining what is happening and God affirming what is happening. So the existence of it is not an endorsement. We never once see God endorse polygamy. Polygamy was something uh, that was a cultural norm in the ancient Near East and in that nation of Israel. So the Bible helps spell out the issues that stem from these practices, socially, culturally, and spiritually in the lives of the people are a mess at this time. For Abraham, his wives hate each other. His children completely fight constantly. It's complete family dysfunction. So that's far from endorsing this. The Bible is actually negative about the practices of it. When we reject the Bible for cultural reasons, we are prioritizing one cultural belief over another, not because we have an objective and detached position from which to judge, but because we are a product of our own time and environment. There's no such thing as a neutral or objective observer. So we must be careful not to elevate our cultural moment above something spoken by God that transcends all cultures and time. When some don't realize that this is the narrative itself was actually in agreement with their concerns, they just use culturally appropriate methods to challenge the status quo that some people just don't realize. See, it's really easy to project our own personal morals, our values, our preferences onto others. We do it without thinking. But the truth is, is that our human tendency is to always view things through the lens of ourselves. Some may reject the Bible because it demands something of them personally that they don't want to do. These people read the Bible and instead of it being freeing and life-giving, it's simply a burden. And the reason is because they read it as if it's all about them. What the Bible tells you, if you read it right, is this. All of us have failed. Everyone. Me, you, and everyone that you know. And that's why we need someone to succeed for us. A savior. And Jesus is that someone. See, the Bible is history. Capital H-I-S. It's his story, the story of Jesus. Through the Old Testament, we see the leading up to Jesus, his family lineage, the history of why God needed to send Jesus, the long list to show that we are incapable of doing things on our own and making things right. As it's been said, Jesus is the better Adam. Where Adam failed the test in the garden, Jesus passed the test. Jesus is the better Abraham fully and wholeheartedly answering the call of God. Jesus is the better David, bringing total victory to his people. The Bible isn't about you and the Bible isn't about me. The Bible is about Jesus. Galatians 3.10 says this, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things I've written in the book of the law and do them. So essentially what this verse is saying is, we fail. <laughs> We've all failed to follow the law perfectly. And even if we've just made one mistake, just one small, tiny mistake, we are cursed. That's not good. But here's the good news. Just a couple verses later in Galatians 3, verse 13, it says this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. 
Jesus chose to go on a tree, a cross that was made of wood, to pay the penalty of death that was required by me and by you. The rules in the Bible are not there to crush you or curse you because Jesus took that in your place. That's the good news. That's why it's called the gospel good news. It's the story of the Bible. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre said this, The only way I can ever answer the question, what am I supposed to do, is if I can answer the prior question, what story am I part of? That's what the Bible is offering today for you. It's offering a better story. A story to make sense of the crazy life that all of us face. It has four basic plots in the Bible. First, we see creation, that God made all that was, and it was good for our pleasure, for his glory. But then we see the second plot, which is the fall, where we chose as mankind to sin, and with that it brought death, destruction into the world. Then we see that destruction play out, and it leads up to a point of redemption, which is in the life of Jesus, of God choosing to send his own son, who is spirit, and send him in human form, so that he could pay the penalty for our sin, and now the renewal, the stage that we would be at, the renewal of new life, and the restoration of relationship with God. The Bible helps give us answers for all the things that we long for and that we face in life. The existence of sin, the need for redemption, the hope of transformation, that we are not alone or abandoned, but we are wanted and we are called. That in the end, there will be justice brought to all the injustice that we see. Maybe over these last few weeks, you might be asking yourself, how do I respond to something like COVID? How do I respond to everything that's going around? The restrictions that now I face, the fear that seems to be everywhere that people are feeling. I felt I was in control of a lot more than I feel like I am now. The world seemed to be a lot more in control than what it is now. I want to encourage you to find your story in his story. That's what God's inviting you to. The Bible is not a rule book that's used to bash you over the head. It's a loving story of God's pursuit of you and me, that we could have right relationship and live with him. I want to invite you just to, to pray with me this morning. And maybe you've never had that opportunity to really embrace that story that you're invited to be a part of. With that, you don't really know how to deal with the stuff that's in front of you. Maybe you really have just always looked through life through that lens of self. But this morning, there's something going on inside of you where you realize there's more than that. God's inviting you to be a part of his story. Let's pray together. And if that's you, you can just pray this for yourself. God, thank you for the Bible, which tells me about how you came to save me and the rest of the world. I recognize that I haven't done everything right, and I can't fix things on my own. I've come to the point where I realize I need more than myself. Would you forgive me for what I've done wrong? 
would you come live in me, lead my life, and help me live in the way that you would want me to? Can you help me live out the story I was born to live? And fill me with your love, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before uh, we conclude this morning, I want to invite you. Uh, this morning, we've only been able to tackle a few of the issues, and obviously there's a lot more uh, introsyncrities mm -hmm. with the Bible. Man, that's a tough word, like a flock of pigs. But if you're wanting to learn more about the Bible, I want to invite you personally to join our Christian Foundations course. It's going to be starting this week on Tuesday evening, starting at 7 p.m. Next week, our topic is actually going to be on the Bible. We're going to talk about how the Bible was put together, how we can know it's trustworthy, go through the history of everything. And you'll have an opportunity to interact, ask your questions, and I'll be teaching that course and would love to have the opportunity to exchange information with you. If you'd like to do that, uh, you'll find some information on our website uh, to be able to sign up for that course, or you can refer to the announcements that were put out. All right. Have a great day, everyone.